1: Hello, everybody. This is Wayne from the band The Flaming Lips, and this is the LSQ Podcast. You know, people will say, you know, we don't compromise with that. It's like, I can tell you for sure, some of the greatest things we've ever done would be because we compromised. Because it didn't matter that much. You know, it didn't matter to get your way. I used to love that Frank Sinatra song, I Did It My Way. <laughs> but now i'm just like what a fucking baby you know he's like he's like 60 years old and he still has to have it his way you know i just feel embarrassed about it
0: funnily enough wayne Coyne himself is now 60 years old and this is episode 60 of the lsq podcast so i feel like we're off to a strong start if that sort of coincidence is numerologically significant anyway hi i'm jenny lsq and it was such a deep honor and pleasure to connect over Zoom with Flaming Lips Wayne Coyne back in February uh, for the conversation you're about to hear. I've been just a massive Flaming Lips fan since hearing their 1992 album Hit to Death in the Future Head back during my freshman year at college. And I've had the joyful, life-affirming experience of seeing them live on several occasions since. Each performance among my all-time favorite concert memories, honestly. Uh, So it was amazing to get to ask Wayne about... All sorts of stuff about his early days getting into punk rock and the early days of the Flaming Lips, about compromise in the artistic process, uh, and to get to hear about the process behind their recent Space Bubble concerts at home in Oklahoma City, uh, where the band and audience members were all in, like, you know, large inflated balls. So, yeah, that's where we begin. Yeah, I saw photos and it looked amazing and I know there was a lot of conceptualizing and and practicing with it leading up to it. But, yeah. you know, in the in the hours afterward, the next day when you woke up, how did you wake up feeling about it?
1: I think you're exactly right. It's like there's a brief moment and and I don't know, you know, I'm just I'm just a worrier, you know, you just worry about every everything, you know, and um there was a brief time at the end of a, of the second one. Where it really did feel like, oh my gosh, this was, I don't know, you know, a lot of times when you just do a concert, you're just glad that it was a great concert. You don't really have any other dilemmas, you know, or previous to COVID, there wasn't any other dilemmas, you know. So you just kind of congratulate yourself in the audience and say, that was great, thank you. And, you know, so at the end of this one, it's sort of like, well, everybody stayed safe, everybody had fun, it it all worked out, you know, no one had a heart attack, you know, nothing happened. And um, we all played great, and we all communicated great. You know, it's just a different level of, of relief of like, oh man, that this is this really went uh, amazing because there's just so much at stake. Um, and then you do, you wake up the next day and you just start to worry again, like, should we do more? And what is this? You know. And so, yes, like you said, a lot of conceptualizing, but mostly, I think, you know, I think it's it's like a lot of a lot of things that you go to do, you don't realize. How hard they are in the beginning, <laughs> so so you say, "Oh, I think we can do this, and you know it's it's like running a hundred miles, but you don't know it. You just have to do two miles at a time, and you think, "Well, I can do that you know so I think this was very much like that in the beginning, you know, just a couple of weeks into the the original lockdown that would have been back you know a year ago in March, the Stephen Colbert show people, you know, we had, we've we done, done the Stephen Colbert show quite a few times, and I think they thought we were one of the groups that maybe could put together this home concert stuff, which nobody knew what that was when we were talking to each other. We were like, okay, so we're going to do it here, and then you're going to air it. And they're like, yeah, we think this is how we'll do it for another couple of weeks or a month. See, that's how optimistic we were, that it's like, we'll do this, and it'll be all be over, and luckily, you know, they were You know, they're slightly equipped at it, too, because, you know, we had done the Stephen Colbert show 2012, and they had, it's funny that they had a couple of space bubbles, because we did the show where Stephen was in one, and I was in one, and we both went out on the crowd, and we act like we're, I forget what the concept was, I think we're fighting or something, you know, and it's all supposed to be funny, but they had two of these, so when we talked about it, you know, I, I, we talked about doing the, the space bubble, really just one song for their show because they'd seen my Instagram cartoon where I sort of made fun of the way the flaming lips usually I'm the only one in the space bubble but in 2020 I'll be in a space bubble and the band will and will be and so will the the whole audience so we were thinking well this would be absurd you know not important not funny not making fun of anything but just absurd you know so we, we attempted to do it but I told them even then, like, you've got to help me get more of these space bubbles. Cause I, I, I have like eight or nine of them. And of course they had the two, but we still wanted to get about, you know, we wanted to try to see if we could get like a 25 or so altogether, you know? So we got the space bubbles. We do the video shoot, the mayor of Oklahoma City was even there. I mean, at the time in Oklahoma City, when we did that very first video shoot, we were at the lowest numbers ever. You know, we were very low for the country, but we were very low even for us here. But then it was still going to be a while till it aired on the Stephen Colbert show, which we thought again, well, this will probably all be over by the time it airs. But Stephen will make it seem funny and it'll seem relevant and will look cool. And, you know, who, you know, who knows, you know? But as we know now, it, it, did, it wasn't over. So we do the we do the Stephen Colbert show. But you know what happens is people see the Stephen Colbert show and they don't really know what it is. And it goes all around the world. This this video and this image it goes all around the world and people already think it's a concert because because you know in their defense it looks exactly like a concert would and it sounds like a concert and people are clapping and going crazy. So I think all the feedback that we got from that you know, made us think, well, you know, it seems like if we were able to do this, that people would really like it because you don't really know, you know, you don't really know if people are just going to think this is stupid and I don't want to get in one of these bubbles, you know, or whatever. But for the most part, it seemed very much like this is great. I want to do it, you know. But we didn't really think seriously then about doing a a bigger thing because that was still like, well, this will all be over in a couple of weeks. And we did this thing for Stephen Colbert. But then we did a we did the 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 one for uh, Jimmy Fallon, and we did lots of other littler things. Still with the idea of the space bubbles being, you know, just amongst us. So in the meantime, we did get a hold of the manufacturer. I mean, we as the Flaming Lips have had a lot of things made for us over the years. We have giant inflatable rainbows and giant pink robots and all this stuff, and we have a great relationship with some manufacturers. Um, and we just asked them we sent them a picture and said could you make these space bubbles for us and they said yeah we, we could and then they you know they very quickly made a sample and gave it to us and said yeah we, we could do this and we we're like okay well let's see what happens so we we got them working on it again part of it thinking well the coronavirus could all be over and well we tried and it all came to nothing but that's okay you know well the coronavirus as we know <laughs> you know <laughs> it, it wasn't over and Uh, these all came in and i opened them all up just on my driveway and they were just they were just brought here by ups it was one giant truck of ups brought every one of them and i just couldn't we couldn't actually believe it's like they really they're really here oh my gosh so the venue that we'd been doing these videos in you know they're sitting there empty they don't have any shows going on so we took it all down there and said well let's do a bigger video shoot. Again, it's just a video shoot. You know, it's, it's, it's jumping up in numbers and it's getting more serious, but it wasn't still um, just the general public's gonna come in and feel like we've, we've got all this taken care of. It's a video shoot and I think the audience knew we were gonna do songs three or four times. And you know, there was a lot of, it was more relaxed or whatever but still a lot of stuff to make sure it could all happen, you know, and be safe. And we didn't, and, you know, we didn't really know how it would all work. So we were very, very cautious about how everybody would get in and get out and all that, you know. And in October, when we did that, that first big, big video shoot, Oklahoma City again was in, we had good numbers, you know, we had good COVID numbers and, and uh, all that seemed to be we're, we're doing the right thing and we were moving in the right direction. Um, but then right after that, when we were starting to schedule the real concerts where people are gonna buy tickets and it's, it's gonna be a bigger, serious thing, the COVID numbers here got really bad, as they did everywhere. And uh, you know, whatever, whatever the thing was that was happening from Thanksgiving to Christmas to uh, New Year's Eve, you know, that was pretty devastating. And so luckily we moved those shows uh, to the thing in January. And the numbers by time we were doing that show had been receding little by little as we went. So we felt good about that. The risk was, you know, it's still a a big risk, but it wasn't insanely, you know, uh, risky in that way. But that, I think it really did make us sort of up the ante on these safety things. It really made us say look this is this is serious and not just serious because we have the audience in here it's serious for us too you know we can catch the COVID just like anybody else so everything that we were doing was for us first because if if we can't rehearse without getting sick there's no point we can't even do a show so you know all these things we had to figure out how we, how we were rehearsing in our big warehouse inside space bubbles you know we'd we'd drive to the warehouse the big rehearsal space get out of our car and walk directly in to our space bubbles, you know? Um, So, you know, luckily all that's been going on for a long, long time, you know, since last March, we've really not rehearsed as just a group standing there yelling at each other over the loud music and, you know, it's gonna be going on a year. So, I mean, we'd gotten quite used to that by the time we were doing an actual concert by all the little steps that we'd done going into it. So there's the long answer to your first question. (laughs)
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting, too, because we're all in a in a kind of evolving awareness of what feels safe and what doesn't feel safe. And, you know, I can imagine fans, first of all, who probably have always wanted to get into a space bubble. You know, all it really takes is someone seeing you in the space bubble to think, I want to be in a space bubble. And And then there's their chance. And as you start to feel like you know what you can do safely and you know that there's protocols at events like this, other things too, like cart drive-in concerts. I'm stoked on that. I kind of like hope that maybe over the summer some, you know, places, locations where it's possible will start to expand that this year because that also feels like like an opportunity. I,
1: to- I agree. I mean, you know, when when people started to talk about the drive-in concerts, we were very open to be like, I'd go to one of those just to be at something. Different, you know, just to be like, this isn't the normal concert, but who cares? You know, this is this is the way we have to do it now. We'll do it, you know. And I think exactly what you said. You said it very well. Of, of all the interviews I've done, I'm gonna steal your way of saying that is our attitude is evolved. You know, so the things that we did the very first video shoot, you know, way back in May, by the time we we're doing the concert, everybody's used to them. The standing in the uh, on the the spots on the floor for social distancing the mask, virtually everybody that we run into, I mean, everybody at the show has to be masked up, and then our attendants. you know, they're absolutely covered, and they're wearing clean gloves all the time, but everybody is more used to that, you know, to whereas, it's funny how, you know, four and five months can really change what you're, what you think is acceptable, you know, and so, yeah, I think all that helped us as well, you know, In the beginning it felt like you're really you're gonna get people to do all these things and be in a space bubble and but by time it came around in january everybody was always doing those things already just to go to trader joe's so it's like yeah you'll do that to go to a concert of course you know so you're right though it's your our attitudes even us in the band it, it evolved as it went to be like we can do this and i think the idea that everything you do is helping the world, I mean, that's, to me, that's part of it as well. It's like, it's not just you, you know, by you doing this, you're keeping your friends safe, your family safe and everybody else's family safe and all that. So it's a great peaceful, defiant gesture to say, I can do this, you know? And yeah. I think little by little, especially Flaming Lips fans, I, they, they did embrace that. And I think it's, it's like you said too, I think there's always been a desire to be like, I want to get in one of those space bubbles too. <laughs> so i think we've been lucky we've been diligent and i think we're lucky that it's flaming lips fans because they're so they're so smart and they're so brave and they're so willing to help each other you know that's a component too that we're all in this together and and they take that you know they take that to the next level
0: i uh happened to notice that later this month on february 22nd it is the 38th anniversary of flaming lips first show in oklahoma and i'm guessing potentially the first show ever (laughs) wow at the blue note lounge february 22nd 1983 yes wow you're you've really done your your journalistic (laughs) um homework here i love that you know i'm i'm also just curious what what you remember about what if not that first show those first few shows back i I
1: remember i remember the first show i mean it's it's such a yeah, I don't remember so much of the, the third and fourth and tenth shows, but, you know, that first show, the the Blue Note place is still there. You know, it's still the stages almost exactly the way it was when we played about 12, 11, 12 years ago, a, a guy bought it and he wanted it to remain this, you know, this hometown, you know, cool bar So he's made a lot of effort for it to be, you know, stay vintage and all that sort of, you know, cool stuff. Um, So it's still exactly in the place where it was. You know, my father's shop uh, is a big office. uh, It's storage and and, and installation of, you know, warehouse was just down two doors down from this bar. And in the back of my father's warehouse was a was a big. Um, like uh, meat locker uh, area. I think at at one point in the 30s, it was a a big grocery store, but that was long gone, but there was this big uh, area in the back that had these thick walls. And we would rehearse back there at all hours of the the night and into the morning. And we would oftentimes go out front and we would be smoking and there would be people coming in and out of the bar called the Blue Note. And we got to know the owners and everything because we were just always there together. And we said, "Hey, could we play here?" Because really, no place else in town would let us play. You know, there were there was a lot of cool um, little bars where new wave bands were playing and all that, but none of them liked us at the time. <laughs> no one would let us play. So we so we asked them if we could play, and you know, we put up flyers, and 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 it was because of they because they let us play. We had to come up with a name, and that's why we're called the Flaming Lips. So a lot of these things you know, you're doing them in a panic, but i it's definitely seared into my, my memory, you know. And um, we only had like five or six songs. I remember we, you know, but we were very amateur punk rock, very enthusiastic. And um, at the time didn't really, I, I don't think we would have believed you or wanted to have been burdened with the idea that we were still gonna be around 38 years later. Um, we would have thought, no, that's, that's too important. That's too serious. We're just going to do this for a couple of months and then something else will come along. So yeah, little did we know. Yeah. COVID and the flaming Lips stuck around longer than we thought.
0: Yeah, exactly. But (laughs) I mean, at that point, you mentioned like sort of the new wave bands that were playing around town and everything, obviously this is the early eighties. I mean, were you, did the, did you feel an affinity with any of the other stuff that was going on at the time? Yeah, I
1: mean, you know, there was there were some really cool groups that were very inspiring to us that were local bands as well. There was one called the Hostages um, was uh, a, a brother uh, drummer was uh, and the bass player were brothers. They were gay. Now, I only say it because in 1983 in Oklahoma City to be gay was still it's slightly dangerous. You know, there was one uh, gay bar that we we played at a couple weeks after we played this uh blue note uh, thing at that was you know that was was around in the same area, uh, so they were called the hostages and they was a, a drummer distorted bass, and the woman reminded me of like Yoko Ono she kind of sang like her and screamed like her, and she wore a beekeeper 's black beekeeper 's costume, so you could never see her face or know who she was, and they were utterly insane I mean I, I mean no one really liked them except for us but we absolutely loved them and and I still see them once in a while when we're at the airport or something I'll, I'll see one of them and it's like I'll we'll know each other forever and a lot of the bands that I didn't I think at the time I didn't know that they were playing covers you know I didn't really know all the new wave hits and all that and that some of the bands I'd go to see them I was like man you guys got some great songs <laughs> And they would be playing like Devo songs or U2 songs. I wouldn't really know it. I just think, man, you guys got some great songs, you know. Um, but yeah, I still, I still know a lot of those people. And, and I mean, a lot of those people aren't doing music and stuff anymore. But I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I was already in my early twenties, you know, so, you know, that really is the time of your life. There's something is happening to you. That's kind of, it's kind of do or die, you know, and. As the Flaming Lips, I think we were just so, I don't know, we just felt so lucky that people liked us. You know, we still couldn't believe it. You know, you're just so used to being like, well, you know, uh, we had known a lot of people in bands, we, you know, still do. And it's like, well, they tried, nobody liked them, and, you know, they gave up or whatever, you know. And that idea that even early on when we made our first album and we played these first shows, you know, people liked us and it just really encouraged us to say, well, you know, I guess, I guess we'll keep going. Sure. Why not? You know? And so, so yeah, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was an inspiring time. I mean, I think without punk rock, you know, being such a major shift in the way that people perceived what you could do as a band or as an artist or as a creative person, I don't think I would have been brave enough or smart enough or insightful enough to think you could do it, you know? Previous to punk rock, you know, everybody that was in a band, you'd be compared to the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or something like that, you know? And we'd just be like, well, we can't compare it with that. And and rightfully so, people say, well, you shouldn't be in a fucking band then, dude, you know? And But, you know, once there were bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and Susie and the Banshees and Echo and the Bunnymen, we probably thought we'll, well, maybe we could, you know, not compete with them, but at least be, you know, seen in the same vein of like, well, you know, we're not, we're not trying to be the Beatles. We couldn't be the Beatles if, if we wanted to, but we, we could be inspired by Echo and the Bunnymen or the, you know, the germs or something like that, you know, Black yeah, Flag. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. it's
0: fascinating too, also, just because you were a teenager when punk rock was happening, you know, the sort of early, incarnations of punk rock around the globe that were happening so you must have had a feeling before that of just like what i mean oh hello (laughs) baby bloom Bloom. he's he's the cutest thing ever (laughs) he really is he
1: really is
0: yeah. Um, going back to though, yeah, when you were when yeah. you were baby Bloom, when, when you were <laughs> baby Wayne, uh, what was the music that appealed to you that felt really specific to you in the way that it struck you, like as a kid that you identified with as your music, right, right from the gate?
1: Well, I mean. You know, growing up in my family, you know, my mother loved Tom Jones and my brothers loved, I mean, they, you know, they started at the Beatles, but they loved everything after that too. You know, uh, the Led Zeppelins, the Black Sabbaths, Pink Floyd, all that, you know. So by the time I'm 16, we take a motorcycle, the group of us, my brothers and a couple of friends, we all ride motorcycles from Oklahoma City to, to Los Angeles. A big adventure back then. You know, we didn't have an internet. <laughs> <laughs> Even us back then, we didn't have the internet. Uh, And you know it was just a crazy adventure, but I, I speak of it now being 1977, because I think people, they thought, well, you guys were going to LA to see the new punk rock scene. I was like, no, no. I mean, we were listening to the Eagles. We were listening to, you know, Joe Walsh. We were listening, I mean, to Fleetwood Mac. All that was happening in 1977 as well. But I would also say if, when we saw groups that were punk rock, We didn't know they were punk rock. We just thought they were cool. You know, so it took a while for us to realize, oh, that's like punk rock. And then new wave started to happen, you know, towards the very, very end of the 70s or early, early 80s before anybody was calling it new wave. So in a lot of ways, we didn't really know the difference. You know, we just were like, you know, but little by little, it started to dawn on us. Oh, this is punk rock and this is classic rock and this is. But did you you
0: you personally feel like from a young age that music or art or creativity was an important thing to you?
1: Yeah, and I think I was just lucky that my my situation with my older brothers and the way our family dynamic worked and all that, I think, you know, to be of that age at that time, to be 16 in 1977... I just don't think there was much regard for what was going to happen to you 10 years from now or 20 years from now because it all sort of felt like, you know, this whole thing, and it seems silly to say it now, but there was a lot of doomsday, like the world's only going to be here for four or five more years. What's the point in, you know, some kind of (laughs) long-term plan, you know? Um, And my older brothers, I say, would, would have done this exactly, you know? They're, I remembered us talking about the movie 2001 a space odyssey when this came out in 1969 you know it took a couple of years for everybody to figure out what it was and to see it and whatever but my older brothers and i we would talk about what do we think we're actually going to be doing in the year 2001 which at the time was a long long fucking ways away you know it was just unbelievable and we really did act talk like we would be in space would be traveling around from galaxy to galaxy in some spaceships, seemed very believable in 1970, you know, and we would be listening to music and that was it. You know, there was no, like, what are we going to do for money? What are we going to, what, what about, what, do we have jobs and how do we live? There was nothing specific about any of that. It was just, well, we'll be living in space and we'll be listening to cool music and everything else will work out. So I think for the longest time, I used them as my beacon of like, well, if you think that's true, I mean, you're eight years older than me. If you think that's true, you, you know what's going on. I, I'll believe you, you know? Um, so by the time that wasn't true, you know, I'd already gone through <laughs> being a teenager and I didn't really have any worries about getting a job or any of that. You know, I was just sort of, a, we were just gangsters, hippie gangsters selling weed and being drug dealers and playing music all that was all intertwined you know it wasn't really being a musician you know that part of it it wasn't being a musician it was being a rock star and selling drugs and all that was just a different lifestyle but I think as soon as we became the flaming lips and we started to write songs and you know make records it it really dawned on us that that's what we loved about it we really did love writing songs and making records and the other bits of it that threw us into it really didn't matter to us, you know? So I think there was, you know, there was one door we walked into that we felt very much at home at, but what it was once we got in there, we were like, Oh my gosh, this is a world of music and being creative. And, and I think that really suited me, you know, even though I've no, I really still to this day, I don't know that much about music. I mean, luckily I work with a lot of people that do, and I'm, not, I'm not proud of this, you know, but in a way I am insanely, you know, creative. I just like to do stuff, you know, paint pictures and, and, and do bubble concerts and, and write songs and make records, you know, so I'm always doing a lot of stuff, you know, um, and, you know, one of it is, is, is music and, and that part of it, I just, I don't know. For me, it's like, I can't imagine that I would want to do something that didn't have music in it. I mean, I, I, all, when I talk to artists, all artists really would say that, you know, it's like, no matter what you're doing, if it doesn't, in, it doesn't have music in it, you put music to it. You know, even if it's not your music, you know, you get someone to do music or you hire someone or you, you, you get, you know, everybody puts music to it. So I think I was just doing that. You know, I was living my life, I was making my art and I just thought, I just, I want this to sound like, I, I want some music to go with this. And so we just started to make it up. And we still do that to this day. You know, it's not really like we know what we're doing. We just think, well, this would sound cool. Let's try to make it, you know. And and that's probably why we still like it. You know, I, I think it, it, it probably would get, I don't know, it'd probably be boring or something if we thought we figured it out. Now we just, you know, now we just do it and do it. We still don't really fucking know what we're doing. But most people I talk to, that are really interested in, in ideas and, and, and art and all that. And no one feels like they know what they're doing. You know, you're always kind of waking up amazed that you get to do this thing as opposed to a real job.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Cause what you're describing is like this kind of, you know, being led a lot by instinct and just, you know, the things that come naturally, but also, you know, clearly you have a deep rooted kind of creative artistic philosophy or, you know, as a longtime fan and observer of, your work, you know, and even just when you reference this thing with Colbert and the idea that a sketch would be absurd. And it's like, yes, you love things that are absurd. And and there's a reason punk rock isn't just the less well-executed version of the Beatles. It's the absurd version. It's the deliberately flawed, accidentally and deliberately flawed version that there's something to that that is part of what art is to people who, you know, whether it's of a generation or of a mindset or whatever, that can relate to the thing where there's something fucked up about it. And that's part of why I like it, you know? But I also feel like I'm- Yeah, you're
1: saying some, you say some great, some great, great stuff. (laughs) If I would have said it that way, I would have been embarrassed, but you saying it sounds, (laughs) sounds amazing. No, and you're exactly right. It's, I mean, all that is punk rock. You know, it's like, it's you- being glad that it's fucked up but that you know previous to that you know you didn't know that art was fucked up you know to be a musician meant you've got to know music man if you don't know music you don't even belong here where it's really some of the greatest musicians out there would really say just the opposite like don't worry about that fucking do your thing but in this world when you're young and you're surrounded by a bunch of know-it-alls you know everybody wants to tell you oh this is how it works and you don't know nothing you know and you're, you're, you're innocent, you believe them and say, well, I'll, I want to try to do it my way. And I was lucky, like I said, like punk rock came along and I really did relate to John Lydon. I really did relate to the guys in Duran Duran and even, even you know, Anthony Kiedis and them from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They just said, fuck it, we're going to do it our way and we don't care, Beastie Boys, all these bands. And, you know, that's the, having that inspiration, I mean, you can't, you can't know how valuable that is, you know. Suddenly, people, you know, what you thought might be true, they're living it, saying, "Yeah, brother, it's true." And you know, we started to do more and more shows, and Black Flag came through here and played, and the and the and the Minutemen came through here and played, and the replacements and all these people. I would just get to sit there and talk. To. Sonic Youth came here, and they would sleep on our couch, and we'd talk to them, and you know, and be like, "We're not alone." And I think that's such a powerful bond it's even more of a bond than just doing music you know to know that there's this this thing that y- y- you can do it you can be a part of it and it's they're inspiring you and you're inspiring them and it's 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 amazing it's amazing it's amazing but it is that it's that exact thing it's it's just knowing oh i'm not stupid for thinking this or i'm not just i'm not purposely being an outsider you know i mean i think the way that i grew up i mean my my older brothers and stuff they were freaks you know and they they were glad not to be normal dudes they were glad not to just you know be businessmen or whatever you know but there's a lot of room outside of that where you just say well i know but you know i i do want to make art and then you say well, do i want to make it for a living you're like i don't know you know i i i would I, early on we all had jobs at fast food restaurants and we did our band and you know, your band didn't have to compromise anything to make the money, you know, so you so you work this job. But sooner or later, you know, you have to confront all that within yourself because, you know, people will say, you know, we don't compromise with that. It's like, I can tell you for sure, some of the greatest things we've ever done would be because we compromised, because it didn't matter that much. You know, it didn't matter to get your way. I used to love that Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. <laughs> but now I'm just like, what a fucking baby you know he's like he's like 60 years old and he still has to have it his way you know I just feel embarrassed about it and it's not that important you know I mean that part of it I've I've learned to be like that isn't that's not a compromise that's just seeing other other hues of color in your thing and accepting it and if you're going to work with other people they bring so much to it. you know. They bring so much to your personality by being there with you and giving you a contrast and giving you this other shading. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's all the things that you think you stand for that ruin you. And when you just let go of all that, um, you probably do stand a chance of doing something that everybody can appreciate. And that's the part of it that no one wants to hear. You know, No one in their heart wants to appeal to the mainstream audience. But in a way it's not a mainstream audience it's just normal people you know it's just a normal people that will get up and listen to music and you don't have to sound like anything you can just you can just honestly be you and still still reach those people that's what we found with the flaming lips you know that you can't you can't ignore that you, you and and to play against it is 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 a construct too you know a lot of the music that we grew up with steven and i especially it was fucking mainstream music. There wouldn't be any other way we would have heard music if it wasn't mainstream music. And people who put down mainstream music, I'm like, fucking Mozart is mainstream music. And the Beatles are mainstream music. Are you kidding? You know, it's some of the greatest shit ever. So it's, it's never, you know, you, it, it's always good to know that you think you know what you're doing. But the longer you you go, you go, well, we had no idea what the fuck we were doing. And that's why we kept going, because we, we thought we did, but we didn't really know. And... So, so yeah, I think, I think the more, you know, it's, it's just a, it's just that, that quagmire, the more, you know, the the more you realize you don't know. It's just, it's, it's amazing.
0: And there, I mean, I'm sure there have been various points where you've paused and thought like, okay, they're going to let us do this. They're going to let us put a bunch of cars in a parking lot and play a song at the same time, or they're going yeah. to, you know, yeah. and like, that's yeah. the, that's what you, that's what you, that's what you wanted for yourself. And now, I mean, but even now, 38 years from the first show and in, in another week or so, like, are there sort of pie in the sky, like just wild something that you're like, I still want to someday in the, in, the, in the near future <laughs> of crazy things? I, I think it would, it could appear that way, you know, like, like we're just thinking all this,
1: but we really aren't. I mean, and most of our thing is really just about our songs, you know, it really is just that we get to go up there and do our songs. And in the very beginning of the craziest things that the Flaming Lips have done, we really were just not doing the normal thing. We just didn't really care. You know, we didn't have any desire to come across like just a normal band. So I was like, well, I'm not, I'm just going to stand there and sing and I'm going to throw confetti on people. And I got these hand puppets and I poured blood on my head and it really was not in defiance of anything. You know, I love rock bands. I love normal bands. I love Coldplay. You know, I'm, I'm a fucking dork, you know, and we were just doing it because I don't know, we just thought this was the way our music would be presented better. It wasn't anything to say it's better than anybody else or this is shocking or look at we're freaks or whatever. We just didn't really think about it in that way anymore. But once it got the response, we kicked ourselves and we just thought we should have been doing it all along. We're just up there trying to look cool. We're trying to pretend like we're everybody else. And the minute we didn't care about being like anybody else, I think you really do stand a chance of doing something embarrassing, but original at the same time. I mean, that's part of it, you know? And so, yeah, I don't, we don't have like a a grand scheme. And like, we didn't have a grand scheme to do the Space Bubble concerts. You know, like I said, it was just something that we thought, I think we could do it, it would be absurd, and that would be the end of it. And then that just built into something like, we're really doing this.
0: And so, yeah, I don't, I don't have... (laughs) You know, y'all obviously are have a reputation for those kinds of things adjacent to the music, but certainly make no mistake, for me, flaming lips are about the songs that are and the beauty of the songs. And yeah, even though there are are trappings of others, you know. Yeah, well,
1: no, I and I then thank you for saying that. I mean, I I agree. I think sometimes that's what people think is like, well, it's all this crazy. It's like it's not really for us. For us, it's like we do have we have these songs that are they're gentle and they're they're really so heartfelt. You know, some of Stephen's melodies that that we play, they're just such beautiful, painful melodies that it's kind of like we want to obliterate the audience of having anything to think about except for this music. And sometimes you have to do this most insane things to stop them from thinking about anything else. And that's why I think we do the giant, giant, crazy things. So you don't remember anything (laughs) except... I'm just listening to the Flaming Lips. They have everything I will ever need. And that way, these sometimes these little gentle, personal, sad songs can pierce you. I mean, that's really all we're doing, you know? We just want you to be able to hear the song the way that, you know, the, the way the good Lord intended it.
0: <laughs> I definitely had uh, one of those Wayne's World style, I'm not worthy moments uh, when, I, when I got off the Zoom with Wayne. Wait a minute, come to think of it, that could be a good Halloween costume. You know, a lot of people do classic Wayne's World, but what if you did a twist on it where it was Wayne Coyne with the hat and the t-shirt and Garth and all. I'm Jenny LSQ. Thank you for uh, coming along on the journey in episode 60 of the LSQ podcast. Episode 61, out in a few weeks, features a conversation with the marvelous L King. And I've also got the producer and songwriter Pooh Bear for an episode down the line, and Kevin Parker of Tame Impala. You can reach me when you've got feedback or questions. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, at Jenny LSQ. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Um, Is this what you thought you were going to get when you asked me?